Welcome to episode two of the festival at the end of the world, here on The Doug Show. But I mean, who the fuck is Doug anyway? Well, for those of you who don't know, this episode's for you. We'll be looking at my humble beginnings and early life on a small rock in the Irish Sea, with 70,000 alcoholics clinging to it, it was once said. From where I was chased out with burning torches, more or less. After the disintegration of family life and one too many scrapes with the wrong arm of the law. Only to eventually find a new home and family with the invisible circus. Via the festivals, squats and free parties of the early 90s UK subculture and beyond. A journey, nay an odyssey, that would indeed last a lifetime. Only to reach a climactic end of sorts. A grand finale on the distant shores of Panama, at the festival, at the end of the world. I was actually born really near to Stonehenge. My mum always said we were from Henge people. My family were from a small military town nearby called Tidworth. And I was born in Andover Hospital on April the 11th in 1968. But I grew up on a small island where they still used to flog people when I was young. They also had really harsh sentencing laws, draconian, you could say, and it was illegal to be gay as well. When I tell people that, they often think it's some distant country, some far away, but it was actually the Isle of Man a principality of the UK and a tax haven in the north. Despite all that, it was still a fairly beautiful place to grow up and the countryside was really stunning. And It had quite a vibrant summer season with the sort of dying embers of the, the UK tourist trade and uh, a lot of kind of poor tourism, if you like, from the north of England and Ireland and lots of scousers and uh, northerns that come over every summer. And there'd be lots of crazy gigs and kind of, I guess it was a bit of a golden era in its way, but definitely the dying days. And every year they'd have the TT races, which they still have. The place would fill up with all these hairy, crazy bikers. And well, I mean, once the prison was full, it was kind of open house, you know, anything goes. So you'd have all these naked bikers kind of wheeling up and down the promenade and gigs on every night and yeah really good fun but the rest of the year it would return to this quite sort of um controlled and yeah draconian kind of scene <laughs> uh people used to say it was like there's still the 1950s there when it was the 1970s but it did have a kind of a vibrant sort of thing about it as well my dad was um used to work in all the arcades and fairgrounds and stuff as well as being like a cash cash register maintenance man, which has always kind of made me laugh because he's such an anti-capitalist. But um, so I kind of grew up around all that fun fair stuff and fun parks and amusement parks and stuff and yeah, all the arcades up and down the promenade and down the main street. And my parents split up fairly acrimoniously when I was around seven or eight and. Um, my mum stayed on the island for a while, but um, eventually left and moved to England. And yeah, although that was kind of 
hard in its way and we didn't have any other family there I also got to go over to England quite a lot and get exposed to you know things you wouldn't see on the Isle of Man which was sort of going to gigs and stuff like that which rarely happened on the island back in those days I can't remember what age I was kind of heading fairly solidly off the rails and my dad bought me a guitar and in that classic era of punk even though I was kind of you know came to punk uh, it was kind of probably already over when I got there but um you know we started our own bands and didn't let not being able to play our instruments stop us and you know started putting on a few gigs and had quite a few bands um in my hometown yeah which is what I'm why I'm named Dougie actually because my hometown's called Douglas and uh I went to school out of town so not only was I a, a come over to the island or even worse a stopover but um I was also like this sort of outsider at the country school because I came from the big city. <laughs> uh, and then when I was 15, I sort of, I, with my friend Fillmore, we started another crazy band, a four-piece transvestite mutant electro-pop band, I guess you could call it, a punk band uh, called 300 Chanting Heathens. And we were kind of like the novelty act. Frank McGee was the singer from a, a local band called... Um, uh, Joe Public and he'd like chainsaw his way out of the speaker cab at the beginning of the gig was kind of like a, a hero in many ways and he used to give us slots to start with when no one else would <laughs> and we just get really trashed and um, and play these sets and you know barely be able to get through the set usually because one of us would be so wildly out of it and um but yeah, people loved us, <laughs> nonetheless. Uh, and at the same time, I was also in a slightly more uh, serious musical effort, I guess, called Agony Dancing from the south of the island. So I kind of instigated getting gigs with them as well. And that was one of the things, I suppose, I started putting on gigs. And uh, I remember getting one of the first gigs was off of Nicotine Roy, who I knew through my dad working at the arcades. Roy used to run the old Strand Cinema and um, he was sort of this yellow-skinned, balding guy in a kind of shabby suit. And I remember going into the Athol Hotel and being like, hey, Roy, you know, and I was wondering if maybe we could do a gig. And like he nev never really spoke. He just sort of nodded and mumbled and al always had this sort of yellow fingers with a cigarette on the go constantly and just kind of nodded and mumbled along. I think we charged 50p on the door or whatever. And, um, yeah, it was one of our our first gigs but yeah music was definitely a thing and, and punk bands and, and narco punk bands especially I was big into the mob and crass and the sort of a narco punk thing which was all ironically run through the Royal Mail really with um, tapes and fanzines and stuff and part of their whole thing uh, one of crass's sort of Christ the album it was called which I got into got into proper scrapes taking that into school because it was vitriolic content but um was Stonehenge Festival and uh you know Stonehenge had become yeah well started in the 70s like a hippie thing I guess but yeah punks had started and especially I guess the <clears throat> West Country groups like the subhumans and everyone would go to go to um, Stonehenge so I made this mission to go to Stonehenge when I was 15 instead of doing my mock exams at school. And, um, yeah, I went and got a proper education, <laughs> I'd like to think. Um, 
Yeah, and my mum had sort of, I think my mum got my brother to go. I, so I told my dad that I was going to visit my mum and didn't tell him my mock exams were on and went off and my mum had sort of got my brother to go to keep a bit of an eye on me. But you know, he was really cool and kind of let me do my own thing as well. And um, yeah, we, we hung out and I started this free food store. I was just like hustling food and making this soup and giving it away free and um and this guy came up and was like did you feed my son you know what i mean and i was like oh no i've poisoned some kids <laughs> and i was like yeah yeah no i did yeah and he was like oh well, like i want you to have this and it was this homemade lsd tab that he'd made and um i'd met this poet called dog dog and doug so i get you know we did halves of, of it and um and he's like, hey, we've got, hey, we got to go and see Hawkeye. We've got to go and see Hawkeye, which is obviously a big thing at Stonehenge that I didn't really know anything about. But um, we ended up going up to the main the pyramid stage, um, the original pyramid stage, I suppose. And, uh, you know, and Hawkeye were coming on. And I, there's a whole thing which I learned later, which was like Hawkeye would take forever to come on at Stonehenge. But um, I didn't know that. So we we dropped this acid and um we climbed up on the A-frame that sits on the front at the front of the stage and sort of sat squatting there on the crossbar. You know, getting slowly higher and higher. And um and the field was just filling up with like thousands of people until it just seemed awkward to get down, do you know what I mean? It was uh, quite high in all all, all ways. And uh, and yeah, and eventually Hawkwind did come on and they were it was immense. <laughs> yeah, and had a had a proper life-changing experience there, really. Uh, and I was, I was like, for some reason, I had my school uniform. I had this mailbag, and my school uniform was in it. And I was just sort of crawling inside it and sleeping initially in front of the main stage. And I remember, <clears throat> like, waking up in the middle of the night as all these Hell's Angels were driving across the main sort of stage area and kind of driving through rubbish bags and stuff. And I was like, oh, I don't want to get run over by these Hell's Angels. And... Um, yeah, and woke up the next morning, um, and this girl was girl sat there with some friends next to me and was like, "What are you doing?" Uh, and let me, um, yeah, let me stay in the front of her tent. I was Deb Gooch from um, My Bloody Valentine, I think she, she was in, but she was in the Bikini Mutants at the time, which was a, a wicked punk band. So yeah, she let me crash in the porch of her tent, and um, that's where I set up camp. And yeah, the, the sunrise on the stones, I think I was still feeling the effects of the acid from Hawkwind the night before, and it was definitely kind of like a, I guess just a, yeah, massively life-changing experience. I'd never seen people be so free and so much music, you know what I mean, coming from this small island, which I'd, <clears throat> I'd been in touch with, you know, through fanzines and stuff like that, but actually to be there and realise that was what was going on, I suppose. Um, it was really hard to think about going back to the island and back to school, you know. And on the Monday morning after the festival, still feeling pretty fuzzy, to say the least. I remember sat there hitchhiking, trying to hitchhike away, and uh, these army trucks would be coming by, and all these squaddies in the back would be like leaning out and, and shouting and spitting at us. And I was like, oh man, that could have been me. Because my family were all from that area. My dad grew up in uh, Tidworth, a town nearby, where he was one of only like four people that weren't squaddies of his age group. Yeah, <laughs> it could have been so different, eh?
and yeah, sure enough, I got to my mum. I remember coming round at my mum's in the bath, and um, and she's like, you're banging on the door, and be like, your father's on the phone, your father's on the phone, and I had to go and pick up the phone, and he's like, I'm not going to say anything, and then just press play on the on the the, um, <laughs> the message recorder, and uh, the headmaster's there saying, why is your son hasn't been at his exams and all this, you know, and um, and my dad was just like, get back here now. Like the next year, I really wanted to go back, but um, I think I'd ended up getting busted and yeah, things were going, things were going badly on the island. But the, the next year, I think the, the Hell's Angels had started like, there's a lot of violence with the Hell's Angels um, attacking punks and stuff. Um, and then the following year, 1985, when I think I was finally was able to go back to England, it was the, the Beanfield happened. And um, yeah, the police and the, well, the army, <laughs> the military uh, attacked all of these, you know, innocent women and children and, and men in, in buses uh, in such a violent and brutal way. And um, yeah, that was the first time I sort of saw, yeah, I guess, I, well, having grown up with that kind of pressure, yes, it was the first time that it happened that I saw that kind of clamped down on some kind of on something so free and so alternative and you know sharing and um, community orientated but yeah that was the first time which is something that was, and I was like why is it ever you know just when I discovered it suddenly it was it was over in such a brutal and dramatic way and, and it was horrifying as well to those people that I knew my mum lived in Banbury you know and people were like well I think they deserve it because you know, I have to pay, I have to pay my taxes and my rent and yeah, it was horrific to think that people saw things that way, really. So yeah, I got back to the Isle of Man, kind of like, guys, guys, we have to leave, you know. <laughs> there's a whole, there's a whole world over there, just people doing gigs and getting high and having a lovely time, you know. We don't have to live here like this and... Before I could, um, yeah, before I could leave and encourage everyone else to come with me, um, I'd been, I'd been uh, busted. Well, I, I mean, I wasn't even really busted. They busted my friend's flat, and she had um, a history of mental health issues and was on medication and stuff. And they found they found the sort of joint butts, you know, like the butts of some joints in an empty pipe. So I said they were mine. I didn't want her to be sectioned or something because they're also quite keen on that kind of thing over there. Yeah, I ended up going to juvenile correctional facilities um, for, I think it was six weeks, uh, for admitting that I smoked marijuana, even though no actual marijuana was found. Uh, and they put me on a year's probation as well. You know, by that time, my sort of card was marked and it was, we were kind of, it was kind of obvious we were, <laughs> we were pretty high because we were, you know, dressing as women and playing crazy gigs and just doing outrageous behaviour. You know, all very light-hearted and not harming anyone, of course. I actually adjusted quite well to prison life after a tricky start. I'd gone in with two other lads about my age with the same blonde hair as me, and um, but whereas my first offence or second it was like their 15th or something 
and for multiple car theft and house break-ins and that. And the boss of the place was furious to see them again anyway, and, um, and but by default uh, with me as well, because I, I'd arrived with them. He thought I was also with them on the same charges. And as this bluster was building up to a crescendo and a sound thrashing was at hand, I kept trying to intervene uh, and explain I'd never met these two before. But he was having none of being interrupted and thrashed me anyway in the end. Even when I'd eventually blurted out that I was on different charges. Yeah, just some of the other kids in there as well, like real young kids. There's one really tiny kid whose dad used to take him on jobs because he could fit him through all the windows and stuff. And uh, yeah, particularly harrowing, one girl got brought in and she has strange cat-like features, I remember, and um, was just like kicking right off, uh, you know, spirited, really a spirited lass. And um, yeah, but just obviously from a troubled home, you know, and, and was just entering into that, into that system there. And um, yeah, I remember her like crying in the cell next to me, like all night, and um, and me trying to say like reassuring things. I was a bit older than everyone else there. I think they're all like, like a couple of years younger than me mostly. But yeah, trying to say reassuring things and stuff. And one of the worst things about the place was that it was like you know, a couple of hundred yards away from the abattoir. Um, so twice a week they would like wash out the abattoir and you'd be stuck in this cell like all afternoon she got locked up in your cell in the afternoons and um with your bible <laughs> and yeah just be locked in this cell with the stench of death because the window across the hall would be open so you couldn't couldn't escape it and that was really really uh hideous yeah, in the end, halfway through my probation, I kind of, I sort of fessed up to my probation officer, um, Mrs. Hume, who's a, a lovely lady, it has to be said, um, that I was kind of just jollying her along and and that I wanted to leave and move to England where my where my mum lived in Banbury and, um, you know, and it'd be better for me and probably better for everyone else if I did so. And, and even though she could, it wasn't legal for me to do that, she, she didn't stop me. Um, although it made me sort of, I didn't go back to the island for many years because I just didn't know what the implications of that were. Although eventually I had to go back and get a passport and she was the only one that could sign it. Um, so I ended up walking into her probation office with some multicoloured head, leather clad um, young punk. I managed to escape um, as I saw it. Everyone got busted not long after I'd left. They busted the rehearsal place we had with the band down south. My friend Fillmore was getting arrested and it was like this really unnecessary clampdown went on. And I felt like I dodged a bullet just about. And eventually, yeah, more, more of the crew did, did move away and we did play, play gigs and stuff together. But it was a couple of years later, I moved to London. But yeah, we did the whole, the whole music thing and discovered squatting a couple of years after being there and that was really the big change of just this introduction to a whole alternative way of living and and like all of the gigs and everything like you didn't you didn't need to have money to be able to go out and do stuff and see stuff and it was a really creative kind of vibrant scene very positive As you know people would work 
on these temporary spaces and turn them into these crazy wonderlands and they'd be like you know like a live music floor a rave floor a kind of theater floor and um yeah a lot of really sort of diverse different stuff happening and yeah a real feeling of a revolution really and sort of um community and an alternative culture uh building and a free culture um you know and everybody everybody wanted to move to london and join a punk band when i was a kid on the other man and i always felt like um proud that i'd managed to do so <laughs> So 1992 was a pretty standout year in uh, in London and in general, really. And um, I spent some time in Ireland, having a bit of a cosmic time at the end of 91, and uh, got back to London all kind of fired up. Uh, and we decided we'd start the first Art Space Life Space project, uh, which involved occupying this empty shoe shop that was underneath um, a squat that my friends were, were in. And we kind of went in through the floor, had one of those kind of recessed doorways where all the shoes would be in the window display, so there's a great gallery space and stuff. And um, and yeah, we'd been in there kind of from fairly early into the new year, into into summer, and um, yeah, it was from there that we ended up going to Castle Morton, which was the kind of biggest, yeah, must be the biggest free kind of gathering of its of the era really um between, you know somewhere around 30,000 40,000 people yeah we turned up there and it was just the most uh, sort of beautiful weather and just a massive gathering of all the different sound systems and Satisfiral Tribe and Bedlam and DIY and like everyone was there pretty much Sam was there with his the mutoid heads and um and it was just a really positive and beautiful get together which was the very much the sort of flavor of the time that was the thing about it i guess it was such a sort of free and alternative community and there was just no trouble i guess that was the threat of it really the, the more people got together and coexisted without security and without uh, control or authorities it was dangerous and a dangerous and revolutionary act i suppose because there was more it was building and building and the more people realise you can do that and kind of step outside of the societal norms and, you know, there were hard times as well as people were desperate for an antidote to, to difficult times kind of enforced by the government. Yeah, that became, you know, that was sort of, it set the bar for what, what could have and should have been a really beautiful revolutionary alternative summer, but um, of course the authorities were kind of wise to it then. And, you know, even at that early stage, before any changes in legislation, just started to police the whole situation a lot more aggressively. Yeah, and the, I mean, the last festival that I went to, another last festival, <laughs> at the end of that season was Torpedo Town, which was a sort of legendary get-together towards the end of the year. And I always remember, like, driving there in convoy because the police would just kind of roadblock you from place to place. and. Uh, and we ended up in this big, like, slow convoy, you know, on dual carriageway, all the trucks and ambulances and hippie buses all next to each other. And just kind of, like, passing splits between vehicles and music playing and people, like, jumping in and out of each other's, each other's vans and stuff as we sort of trundled along really slow. 
until we eventually got to got onto this site kind of which is sort of how it seemed to work eventually that just you just go somewhere or, or manage to take a turn and find find a field or whatever and um, there you'd stay and then at one point going back out to get the equipment for my friend to play a live set and we were there like with all these keyboards and we'd met these kids on the council estate and felt like yeah super sort of urban rebels because they were like what's going on what's going on we're like yeah you come in and see the music you know and and then we were there in this river under this river bank all pretty high <laughs> with like keyboards and uh, bags of like sequences and sat with this equipment and these cops were sort of looking for us because they'd seen us disappearing and then they were on the there was like that scene in the hobbit where the dark riders are up above and the hobbits are all under the riverbank in the water and there we were it's like don't drop the fucking keyboards <laughs> my mate uh, but sort of smuggling this smuggling this music machines in and it was all like riot police and sort of really intense you know, barricades to get through and it could be proper covert and there's like a, a, you know, loads of crusties down there fronting up and holding the, holding the line kind of thing. And yeah, when you got in there, it was just so lovely. It was a real, like, I don't know, something surreal about it, that it was so beautiful and friendly, like, because you'd end up sort of walk, you know, people had their little camps set up outside vehicles and you'd just sort of go, oh, do you mind if we sit down? And be like, oh, cool, no. But you'd end up just, you were just sat in someone's kind of living space, really. And and then they would just get up and walk off. It wasn't even their living space. It was just like so friendly and open, you know, and really, um, yeah, just really good vibes. And you're like, why are they trying so hard to stop people coming into this? You know what I mean? What are they trying to protect exactly? You know, what are they actually defending? Yeah trying to stop people coming together and sharing and trusting and loving and having a good time, you know? But yeah, Torpedo Town would go down in history. And I think the, the, the one of the organizers had tried or in some way had taken responsibility, which was always a thing that you didn't kind of do really, but had put his name to it and then was just dragged through the courts for years afterwards, you know, just ruined his life really. Um, but that was my last UK free festival experience. Yeah, and then that carried on back into London, really, with all the squat parties and free parties started getting policed really heavily. There's one particular one in Acton, I think it was, or Hammersmith, but out west, where the police kind of yeah, had people crawling backwards on their hands and knees out of the warehouse where they were being beaten with sticks and stuff like this, which... You know, obviously puts the, the fluffy party people off the idea of coming along. Um, and can't, yeah, in that sense, it sort of beat the creativity out of the scene as well. People put less effort into setting up the parties because you didn't know if they were going to go ahead. So it all just got a lot, a lot more sort of dark side, really, um, and smaller amounts of people, you know, braving the situation. I remember we we were having... Um, we squatted a big place at the Notting Hill end of Portobello and, you know, the police had come and insisted that we open the door to talk to them or we're coming in to um, confiscate the gear and we're like, that's not going to happen. And he was like, well, who's going to stop us? And I'm like, we are, you know. Uh, 
He's like, what, you and your mate? Because <laughs> as we you know, looked around and everyone else had, had gone out of the back of the building, so it had been like full all the way up the stairs with the crowd, and suddenly it was just us two, and it's like, ah, oh. there we go. But yeah, slowly the, the parties had got more intense and more on top, and, um, and it was kind of, there was always an element of that, like the first weekend you did a party somewhere would be amazing. Like, the, you know, the, I think maybe it was the third weekend I described there when we got closed down, but, or the second. But the first weekend was absolutely amazing. Like Alex Hazard had come and played and there's this kind of crazy live set going on with live musicians and the DJ and, tech, you know, it's just awesome vibes. And, um, but the second weekend would always, it never really worked. You're always better doing a one weekend wonder of a hit and run because by the second weekend, not only the police and the authorities sussed out where you were and what was going on, but also the gangs and the dealers and the, the sort of criminal element, if you like. So it would just come on top in one way or another. Whereas the first weekend, no one could be sure who was who, what was going on. There was always like loads of sort of crusties, the brew crew, you know, who was a sort of, it was a good kind of, um, like a smoke screen really. So no one knew who was, who was who and what was what and who was security and who wasn't and do you know what I mean? It's a self-policing affair in that sense. But yeah, weekend number two was always kind of compromised in one way or another. And maybe that's maybe that's part of it, part of the beauty of it as well, these things that appear and disappear and can't be repeated, you know? And that maybe is there's something about that, about that ephemeral transitory thing. Uh, that does keep it fresh and, and did keep it free for a long time. But yeah, in amongst that, you could tell that, uh, well, things had already changed and it was the precursor to the implementation of the Criminal Justice Bill, which which came in later that, that year. Which is the one thing I regret not being around for, actually, some of the the protests and stuff that went on for that in central London. Um, I would love to have been here for, but um, I was already lost in the in the streets of Spain and Portugal by then. I suppose looking back, especially and even at the time, it made me realise that the powers that be don't want a society of happy, well-balanced, healthy people who work together for the greater good of all. It's not in their vested interests because happy, satisfied people consume far less products. Healthy people need far less pharmaceuticals. A society based on collaboration and equality is simply far less profitable than a divided and competitive one. And if you're part of an elite class who own everything and sell everything, then it's simply bad for business. And maybe, at the time, we didn't quite realise that. At least not en masse. We didn't realise quite what we were up against. We thought we were the antidote. And we were, really. The raves at the time brought everyone together. Punks, rasters, hippies, travellers, even football hooligans. In fact, football hooliganism went from front-page news to radio silence almost overnight. It just stopped for a while. 
and has never really come back to the levels of violence there was in the 1980s. And that was blatantly because of the ecstasy revolution and acid house music. There was always some massive sweaty skinhead with bulging eyes wanting a hug in the morning at the parties, feeling the love for the first time in their lives. Of course, that was never reported in the press. And when you look at some of the societal ills we have now, especially around youth culture with knife crimes and drink spiking and gang culture, you have to admit, we might have been onto something. There was also rarely any trouble, if ever, at the parties. And if there was, it was dealt with collectively and calmly. Tunes turned off, words had, that person would have to leave. And no one cared who the DJ was, what the music was called, or whose party it was. Because it was our party. All of us. United. Together. So thanks once again for joining us on The Doug Show. You've heard a little bit more about me and where I come from, where this festival odyssey began. And if you like what you're hearing, please share it around and join us next time back at the festival at the end of the world.